so disappointing that he took that bet from me. That's, that's bad. He's funny, he's apologizing like, sorry, that's good, we need to sing some more. So, um, hey, if you have your Bible, just go ahead and grab it and turn to uh, Matthew. What I want to do in the mornings is um, just be real straight and real practical on the things that we're talking about at night. And, and so this morning, uh, really this whole week, we're going to talk about what it looks like, at, at least in the mornings, to live in the kingdom. So... Uh, night, we'll kind of stay big picture and talk about kind of the coming of the kingdom and what that looks like throughout the Bible. And then in the mornings, I want, you, I want to help you see how Jesus taught um, what this is supposed to look like in everyday life. And we'll keep it short to the point. And um, so, if nothing else, it'll be it'll be short. So, um, I know you guys are tired. I see you already. So, um, Matthew chapter 5. If you remember last night, we talked about the kingdom of God being... Uh, God's place, God's people, under God's rule, that the identity of the kingdom of God is not just in a set of truths that we believe or doctrines that we hold to, but it's actually a way of living. It's, it's something that Jesus was bringing in when he came in himself. Um, he was gifting to us and that we then live in uh, as a result of coming into the kingdom. So to be a, a kingdom person is not just, again, to ascribe to something, but it's to, to live practically in everyday life under the rule and the reign of Jesus. And so it should transform the way that we think and it should transform the way that we act and it should transform the way that we look at our relationships, the way that we handle our money, the way that we approach uh, purchases and decisions. All of these things are part of the kingdom of God. And so you really can't segment the kingdom off and this Sunday thing that you do when you go to church or to this Wednesday night thing when you do when you gather with your, your youth group. It's supposed to be something that is all-consuming and all-defining. And so it's really a, a reality that we kind of get swept up into more than it is um, something that we just simply believe in and kind of leave on the shelf um, when we leave church on Sunday. So that's exactly what you're going to see in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus begins to unpack and to teach. Um, so let me go back and just kind of give you a little bit of, of context on what Jesus is doing here in Matthew so that you understand um, how this works itself out. So Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, here's what Jesus, so we said last night that Jesus comes and he begins to preach, uh, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. So, um, so in 4, 23, it says that he went throughout all of Galilee. So he goes around this entire region. And it says he te he's teaching in their synagogues and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus is going, going around Galilee and he's teaching in these small towns and villages and cities. And it says he does three things. He preaches, he teaches, and he heals. So he preaches, he teaches, and he heals. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's teaching about the ways of the kingdom, about how we live out the kingdom. And then he's healing to show the power and the purpose of the kingdom. So those three things go together, the, power, the, the preaching, the teaching, and the healing. And that's, that's kind of the context of Jesus' ministry. So he preaches the good news. He tells people to repent and to believe. And then he teaches them, now practically, what does this look like for us to live? And then he heals people as kind of a, a foretaste or a demonstration of the power of the kingdom in everyday life. So as he's restoring people back into what we saw in Genesis 1, where there's wholeness and there's healing and there's no sin, um, and there's just that shalom, the peace of God, um, where, there, where there's, he's, he's kind of rolling back the effects of the curse. When Jesus heals, it's not um, you know, necessarily just kind of a flex. It's, it's showing something about the kingdom. Uh, this guy's come right up to me. Okay. Um, so, go over to Matthew chapter 9, and, uh, and and we'll see kind of the end of this section. So, Matthew 9, 35, it says almost exactly the same thing. And so, Matthew's kind of putting this section together um, for a specific purpose. Matthew 9, 35. 
says, and, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So, Jesus preaching, teaching, healing. Those three things always go together. And what I want to know about Jesus is that, um, and I think what Matthew's trying to say, one of the things he's saying in this section is, you can't have one kind of Jesus without having the other. So you can't have the Jesus who preaches repentance on the one hand and, and confronts us with our sin without also having the Jesus who heals and who, uh, who, who, who casts out demons. Like that supernatural, miraculous Jesus is not somebody different from the one who confronts us with sin. And so sometimes people try to separate that out and they really like the Jesus who heals. You know, uh, people, Some people are really drawn to kind of the miraculous act of Jesus and they love the fact that Jesus casts out demons and he heals our wounds and he, and he you know, grants and imparts certain things. But they don't like it when Jesus kind of gets in their face and begins to confront. Other people are like, they're just, they love the confrontation, but they're, they're kind of skeptical of Jesus' healing power. Then it's where a lot of us Baptists may fall. You know, we're, we love the fact that Jesus teaches truth and that he's, you know, he's preaching the kingdom and he's calling people to repent. We're like, yeah, give me some more of that. I love that. You know, give me the truth. But then we're very skeptical when Jesus comes and he begins to heal. We go, oh, that's not, that's not for today. That doesn't happen anymore. And let's say that you can't have one without the other. It's the same Jesus. And so when the kingdom comes, the kingdom comes in all of its fullness, which includes preaching and teaching and healing. And so if we're going to be Christians, if we're going to be spirit-led Christians, we need to understand this is the same Jesus who does all of these things. So um, let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. This is where I want to just introduce what we're going to talk about the rest of the week. Um, and, and again, this will be very familiar, things you've heard um, before um, if you've been in church for like five minutes. But um, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses um, 1 and 2. So seeing the crowd, so keep in mind, Jesus preaching, teaching, and healing. Seeing the crowd, so Jesus was so uh, just thronged by, uh, thronged by crowds of people. So Jesus was kind of like a, a, somewhat of a rock star. You know, everywhere he was like Bieber, although that's a bad comparison because he's more than Bieber. But kind of like Bieber, you know, just everywhere he goes, surrounded by paparazzi, surrounded by people, crowds of people pressing in on him, wanting to just be around him, wanting to touch him, wanting to kind of, you know, maybe... Uh, Take a little piece of sweat. I mean, just, you know, whatever. They're, they're just all about Jesus at this point in his ministry. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. So he gets away from the crowds, goes up on the side of a mountain. And when he sat down, his, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying. So Jesus is surrounded by these crowds. He kind of slips away on this little plain on the side of a mountain. He begins to teach about the kingdom of God. So his primary audience are disciples. So he's talking to those who are Christ followers, those who are, the, the word disciple just simply means a learner, okay? So his students, his followers, but the crowds are also listening. So there's crowds of people around that are skeptics, that are seekers, that are, you know, atheists. They're, they're kind of gathered around because they're intrigued by Jesus. They're not really sure what to do with him because, uh, like Rory just saying, you can't really put him in a box. He's kind of, he's preaching and he's teaching, but he's healing. So you can't deny these things that he's doing. So there's all kinds of different people that are surrounding him. And look at what he says about the kingdom. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus is going to lay out kind of this, this pattern of life that he calls the kingdom. And it's, it's been called the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, whatever you want to call it. The Beatitudes just simply comes from a, a Latin word that means um, happiness or fortunate. And so he's going to lay out this, this, this pattern of living. And, he's, and it's interesting because it's somewhat of a paradox. He's going to say, if you're going to live in the kingdom, this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom. Meekness and mercy and poverty of spirit and these things. He's going to lay out some are internal. So the first couple are internal. The, the second little couplet are external actions. So internal change always leads to external action. That's the, that's the nature of repentance. So if you have internal change without external change, or you have external change without internal change, that's what the Bible is going to call hypocrisy, right? So wherever you have kind of, you know, uh, an internal, uh, yes, I know this is right. Yes, I know this is what God expects of me, but there's no outward change. That, that's, that's hypocrisy of the highest order. And where you have um, outward change, and so you're trying to behave a certain way, you're trying to perform a certain way, but there's really no heart transformation. That's where we have frustration. That's where we have hypocrisy because, like Jesus said, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You look all pretty on the outside, but really on the inside, you're, you're jacked up. You're a mess. Okay, so um, that's so Jesus says that internal change always leads to external change, and one without the other is problematic. And so this is a paradox, though, because it's Jesus lays out this ideal ethic for how we should live. So this is evidence of the kingdom breaking in. Where you see a person transformed by the rule and the reign of Christ, you will see these things uh, begin to, over time, gradually re replace old patterns of living. Now, the, the challenge with this is, if this becomes the standard by which you gain and earn favor with God, that becomes a problem because, guess what? We're all hypocrites. So, so there's a problem here built into this verse. There's some tension built into this verse because if we try to live this way and we think by living this way we've earned God's favor or that we've kind of got gold stars or some kind of a merit with God, that's problematic because we all can acknowledge that, I mean, are we all merciful all the time, right? Like, so I know that probably even this morning, some of you woke up in, in, in horrific moods because you're hot. You know, I know sometimes, I'm not saying this is just a girl thing, but I, I live with a girl. And I know that sometimes there's just times where, you know, you're, you're angry, you can even get violent, you know, just, I mean, you're just in a bad mood, you wake up and, you know, it's hot and sweaty outside and, you know, you, let's just, let's just maybe say it gently that you weren't exactly merciful this morning uh, towards maybe the girls in your cabin or towards the guys and the dudes in your cabin, you, you woke over and just punched somebody right in the face and made me feel better, you know? Um, so we're, we're not always merciful, we're not, I mean, let's be honest, guys, like, uh, meekness, that, that's a struggle. Humility, that's a struggle. Um, we don't just naturally kind of gravitate towards being meek. We gravitate towards being the opposite of meek, towards being uh, aggressive and violent, okay? And so meekness sometimes is, you know, we kind of struggle with that, especially, you know, if you're if you're kind of an athlete or you're a dominant personality, you're an alpha male, you just struggle to be meek. You struggle to be humble. And so if, if so this is kind of a paradox. And, and I'll say to you, if you're a person that's trying to live this way in order to earn something from God, in order, and if you think by your righteous behavior, by your ability to kind of keep to a moral code that you are earning any favor with God, it's kind of like trying to climb Mount Everest in your underwear. It's just impossible. It can't happen. So if you, know, if you can imagine that scenario where a person, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people go to Mount Everest every year, they go to base camp, and they go to this, they try to you know, climb the summit of, of Mount Everest, imagine doing that in your underwear. You would last about five minutes, okay? And that's exactly what it's like to try to climb this hill of morality. It, it's frustrating, and it ultimately what leads to death, not to life. And so you cannot earn these things. These are, these are gifts and evidences of the kingdom breaking in. And so, um, so here's what Jesus is going to say over and over again. I want you to see this throughout the week, that the person who experiences these 
blessings um, is, is blessed. And that, that word blessed really can mean happiness. It can mean blessing. It can mean fortune. And so essentially, uh, Jesus is saying to us that God is looking uh, from us for more than just begrudging submission. So God wants more for us than just keeping the rules. And sometimes Christianity kind of gets, again, distilled down to a list of rules. And so some of you even here maybe today are not Christians because you're like, I don't need those rules. You know, I'm kind of a self-created being. I'm kind of, I'm my own person. I want to do my own thing. I don't want to live by anybody else's rules. I like to just enjoy my life and kind of create my own rules. And Christianity is just a bunch of rules. But you've missed all that the Bible teaches about what it means to live in the kingdom. Because the kingdom is not about rules. It's about God wanting for us something greater than we even want for ourselves. And so God wants for us deeper levels of happiness and joy. And, and the word happiness is an interesting word. If you trace out its, its roots, that word happiness comes from a Latin word that means happenstance. And so it's this idea that we're happy based on external circumstances in the moment. And so uh, can we just be honest and say that many times our happiness, like we talked about last night, rides on how we feel in the moment based on the surrounding things around us, not based on any kind of deeply rooted satisfaction in God or satisfaction in God's presence, but it's like, you know, does this guy like me now? Does this girl like me now? How am I doing on my sports team? How am I doing with my grades? How am I doing with my parents? And based on these surrounding circumstances, we then find our happiness based on these things. So happiness for us is kind of a, a shifting thing. It's shifting back and forth and up and down. And it's very volatile. We don't find the real deep sense of joy. And what God says is, man, it's not about the rules. Um, what God wants is glad submission. What God wants for me, what God wants for me, is for me to gladly give my life, to, to allow him to reign, believing that what he wants for me is actually what's best for me, what will lead me into the greatest path of joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. So, so it's this idea that discipline um, never brings about love. But love always brings about discipline. Discipline in itself can never bring about joy and love and freedom. Um, what brings about joy and freedom is love. Love produces discipline. Discipline. So it's it's like um, it works just like a marriage. I know that you guys aren't married, so you wouldn't know this. But um, when I got married to my wife, before I was married to my wife, I was single for a long time, like 22 years. And uh, when you're single, you develop all kinds of habits. And so for me, um, I never knew how my clothes got from the floor back into my drawer until I got out of college. Okay, so all throughout my teenage years, um, I was never a guy. Was, uh, my mom just did our laundry, and so I thought there was kind of a laundry fairy that would pick up all my stuff and take it to the laundry, wash it, and put it back in my drawer. And that was pretty much my life. Like I didn't, I never really cooked a meal. Uh, I'm be, being just straight with you. I never cooked a meal other than peanut butter and jelly. I never, uh, I never washed my clothes. I never knew how to do really anything in terms of being a functioning, what I learned later would be a functioning adult. You know, so when you get to college, um, I went my first semester of college, this is no lie, without washing my sheets one time. That's, that's a level of putrid and disgusting that, I mean, think about like guy, what guys do. I played uh, sports all through college, uh, I, I, recreation, you know, I played uh, in, in like the recreation leagues there, inter intramural leagues. So I would literally come home every night, just drenched with sweat, lay in my bed, get up and do it again the next day. I mean, my sheets literally were like, I mean, were like, they were a solid by the time the semester was over, you know what I mean? And there was no give in those sheets, they were crusty, you know? And so, yeah, that's gross. And so, um, what, what happened when I, I mean, I lived with like four other guys in college, we had an apartment, 
And when we when plates got dirty and they stacked up in the in the sink, we threw them away and we started over again. We went to Walmart, and we bought more plates. I mean, nobody did plate. We didn't wash plates. That's just how you let us do. And so girls are like, that's disgusting. Well, I promise you, your husband one day has lived like that through college. Okay, so when we got married, what happened was. Um, I began to go right back into the rhythm. Although I loved my wife, I began to go right back into the rhythm of um, the way that I had been raised. And so I would take my clothes and I would get a, you know get undressed at night. And I would lay them on the floor and then I would go to work and I would come back. And uh, it was amazing that they were still on the floor when I came back. And, and so after a while, my wife began to say things like, um, "Those clothes don't walk themselves to the washer, you know." You know, so like we had these conversations about you know uh, washing the dishes and cleaning up and, and doing my own laundry and helping you know helping out around the house. And what, what, what happened uh, for me was that uh, over time I learned that because I love my wife, um, I, I want to do those things. And now, again, it's been a struggle and it's not been perfect, but, but loving her is, is the foundation for me wanting to do the laundry. Because I'll be honest, um, when I come home from a long day at work, the last thing I want to do a lot of times is, is do the laundry. The last thing I want to do is spank my children because they've been horrible all day long. The last thing that I want to do is clean up after dinner's done. I don't want to do that. So me trying to discipline myself into that never works. But because I love my wife, because I, I, I want her joy, what I've learned over time is that I do do the dishes, that I do uh, discipline my children, that I do do the things that I don't want to do. So discipline never brings about love. But love always brings about discipline. And so I think that's what you're going to see in this passage is that, uh, and, and throughout the week is that what it, what it means to be blessed is that God wants for us joy and happiness and fulfillment. And because we love Him, we seek to be merciful. We seek to be meek. We seek to be humble. We seek to embody these things that He says. We seek to be pure in heart. We seek to be peacemakers. Not because we're earning God's favor, but because He loves us and because He's freed us up to live this kind of life. Now, if you look at these, um, these promises, what you'll notice about these eight things is that they are both future and present tense. Now, this is interesting. This is interesting that if you look at the, the tense of the verbs, these verbs are both in the future and in the present. So look at this passage again. Look at verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, that's a present tense verb, theirs is right now the kingdom of heaven. Now, look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So that shall be or will be is future tense. And so you'll notice that in this, in this passage, there are both future tense verbs and there are present tense verbs. There are two. So look at verse 3. Uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then look over at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you have two um, present assurances sandwiching six future promises. Two present assurances that the kingdom of heaven is yours right now in your experience as you live today. And then six future promises that one day you're going to experience the fullness of these six promises. Now, what are the promises? The, the, the promises are that you will one day be comforted. The promises are that one day you will inherit the earth. That one day we are going to dwell on the earth and we are going to inherit all that you see around you. So... Um, we don't have to worry and strive for these. I mean, some of the, it's so funny how we, we strive after all these things. We try to gain prestige and power and money. And you know what the Bible says? One day, believer in Christ, it's all going to be yours. And so I think Jesus is trying to combat this idea that heaven is, you know, just some future thing out there. We talk about the kingdom of heaven and some future thing out there where you're like this disembodied spirit. And you're kind of floating around like Casper the Friendly Ghost and you're sitting on a cloud strumming a harp. And for, I mean, for most of us, that's not a really compelling vision of heaven. Like that doesn't get me fired up. What gets me excited about heaven is that I'm going to have a body 
and then I'm going to inherit the earth. That we are going to inherit all of these things. That we're going to rule and reign with Christ over all of the earth. Now, I know different people disagree about that. Um, about what heaven actually looks like. What the Bible says is that one day we will inherit all these. That's a promise to us as Christians. We'll inherit the earth. We will be satisfied. Um, in a way that we are not satisfied now. So one day, the cravings that we uh, have for um, these different things in our life, the desires that we have, are going to be fulfilled. We're going to be satisfied. Like, how awesome is that going to be? We're going to talk more about that later this week. How great would that be to be satisfied? To no longer have these insane desires that drive us to do completely ridiculous things. Like the desire for sexual fulfillment. Um, I mean, think about what that drives you to do. Think about the immorality that drives us to. The desire for money and for uh, you know what money can buy us. I mean, think about the insane things that that drives us to. The ridiculousness around them. Uh, we we desire uh, you know kind of a reputation. Think about all that we do again to kind of preserve and to kind of get after this image. I mean, all these things. And the Bible says one day you're going to be satisfied. Just like after you have your favorite meal and you sit down and you're just in that moment just full and satisfied and it feels good. That's, that's what the Bible is saying, that one day we'll be, we'll be satisfied. We, we'll no longer want those things. Um, verse 8 says that one day we're going to see God. That's a pretty incredible promise. Um, they, one day we're going to be called sons of God, that we're going to be His children. And so all these things are promises, and I think what the Bible's getting at is that um, the bless, these are the blessings of the kingdom. So to be comforted, to be satisfied, to be called children of God, to be to see God face to face, these are all future promises. But you know what's interesting is that sandwiched in the middle of those are the two assurances that right now, the kingdom, we can experience these in, in kind of small tastes. And so what I like to compare this to is, I don't know, if you guys have like Sam's Club or uh, Costco down here? Yeah. You guys have, what do you have? Sam's, okay. So one of the things, one of the things I'm in, we have Costco in Indianapolis, and so it's the same concept. We have, um, we are there like every day. So they have like dollar twenty-five hot dogs. So I have four children. That's a great deal. We can eat for under ten dollars. We go in there. You get a hot dog and a coke for a buck fifty. And where else in the world do you get that kind, that level of uh, just you know cheap goodness? You know, I mean a hot dog with some relish, with some ketchup, with some onions. I mean, it's all laid out there. And then you can look to your right and you can see a TV screen. Like you can watch TV while you're eating a hot dog. That is just pure bliss for a man, right? And so, or you have that big, huge slice of pizza that's just so ridiculous that you can't even hold it with one hand. You're trying to figure out how do you fold it, you know, into fours. Do you, I mean, how do you get that thing into your mouth? It's just awesome. And so I love going to Costco. And one of the things I love about Costco and Sam's is they have these tasting stations. You know what I'm talking about? And so you can literally go in, and some of us have done this, if we're to be honest, because we're cheap. We go make a meal. We can just do circles. We're like a NASCAR driver. We're just doing circles around Sam's Club and just doing the taste. I mean, they have, I mean, do they not have the most incredible sausages in the world? Like bratwurst, again, meat, like, you know, pieces of steak. I mean, this is like a dude's paradise. So you just hang out at Sam's all day and just do the tasting stations. You keep going around, they're like, hey, haven't you been there? No, it's my brother, man. That wasn't me. We got this one brother. You know, so you just keep going around and around and tasting. And, and one of the things that's so great, as soon as you walk into Sam's, you can smell it. You can, just the smell just fills the air. And there's just this, this I mean, just this unexplicable, inexplicable, um, just happiness in my soul that comes from walking around Sam's. Now, that you may call that cheap, and you may call that weak, but that, that's just what it is for me, okay? So just give me my cheap pleasures, okay? Give me, give me what I got. When I got four children and I'm trying to plant a church, going into Costco is like a refuge, you know? So I love hanging out there. And, and, uh, and it's, it's a foretaste. And so what happens when you buy that is you go, man, that's some good sausage. I think I'll get some of that, take it home, and grill it myself. 
That is exactly what's happening here in this passage, that these things are foretaste of the kingdom. So when we experience these things, even in small doses, when we experience what it's, what it's like to live in the kingdom under the rule and the reign of Christ who loves us and who wants nothing but our joy and our satisfaction and our happiness, and we experience what it's like to walk in comfort. Like when some of us are suffering so deeply, like I know some of us in this room have probably struggled with illness. Maybe some of you had cancer. You've walked through that. And you know what it's like for Christ to be your joy, to cling to him, and to know that there's nothing else in this world that's better and more satisfying than him. Or maybe you've walked through a dark season in your, in your family. You've walked through a season in a relationship where you just were absolutely devastated, and yet you found satisfaction in Christ. And you know what it's like to be comforted while you're mourning by Jesus Christ. I mean, that in small measure is one day will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so um, all of these things are foretastes of the coming kingdom. And that's, that's an awesome promise. So we have these promises that one day all of these desires that we have to live this way, to experience what we so desperately long for. And, and that's really what it is, right? That's, it's a hope. It's a longing for something that we don't presently have, to be satisfied, to be comforted to be pure at heart. Like all of these things that we so desperately want, and yet we try to find them in all kinds of different places, and yet we, we find that all those things are lacking. And so one day the Bible says we're going to find those things in the kingdom. And so as Jesus comes in and he begins to break into your life, and you begin to see the evidences of, as you live this way, as you live as a peacemaker, as you live as a person who's pure in heart, as you live as a person who's poor in spirit, who mourns, who's meek, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, you begin to taste the goodness of the kingdom. And that's, that is so beyond white-knuckled obedience and just morality and trying to live a certain way and trying to just keep a code. You see how that's greater than a law? You see how tasting uh, the goodness of God can be so much greater, more powerful than a law? When you've tasted that and you've experienced that, like you, you want more, man. You're intoxicated. And that is the essence of what it means to live under the rule and reign of Christ. Now, one more thing, and, and, and we'll be done, because we're going to spend uh, plenty of time this week talking through each of these issues, each of these different promises. Um, there's a little bit of a subversion in what Jesus is talking about. What I mean by subversion is um, to live this way, to live under the reign of Christ in your life, to see the kingdom as more than something that you just believe in or a set of truths to be ascribed to, but to see the kingdom as a way to live is radically different than the way that the rest of the world is living. And so it's, a, it's somewhat of an act of defiance. When you live this way, when you grab a hold of the kingdom and you begin to live the way that Jesus is saying it, li it looks like to be happy and to be blessed, and you begin to find your joy and satisfaction in Jesus and not in the things of this world, what you are doing is an act of subversion. It is an act of defiance. It is kind of shaking your fist at the kingdom of this world, which is passing away, by the way. So the Bible says there are two kingdoms. And the Bible presents um, really all of life as a, a submission to one kingdom or another, an allegiance to one king or another, a loyalty to one kingdom or another. So it says that Satan, on the one hand, rules over a kingdom, and they call this in Ephesians 2, it says that he is the prince of the power of the air, that he rules over this, uh, this kingdom over here that's the kingdom of darkness, that's the kingdom of this world, that has values and systems and loyalties attached to it. And so the Bible will say for some of you right now, um, even though you may think you're living in the kingdom of Jesus, you're actually living under the kingdom of darkness because your life reflects the values of this world. Or, on the other hand, there's this value over here where Jesus is the king, and, and he has certain values and, and a certain way of living and a pattern of life that leads to life. So one leads to death and to slavery. One leads to life and leads, leads to freedom. And so there are different times when even as a Christian we find ourselves kind of drifting towards this kingdom over here. 
But, but, but the Bible presents it as two realities. One kingdom over here, one kingdom over here. When you begin to live this way, and this, this kingdom ethic, this rule, living under the reign of Christ begins to consume you, what happens is um, you begin to move away from this kingdom and move towards this kingdom, and it's an act of defiance. It's an act of defiance. It is basically saying that this kingdom and its war and its, and its values and its hold over us um, is passing away. So when you begin to be meek, when you begin to be a peacemaker, when you see uh, the purity and heart that comes from living under the kingdom, and you kind of grab hold of that, you are acting in subversion to the kingdom. You are subverting, you are, you are defying, you are saying, this is not my joy, this is not my satisfaction. And so you're beginning to embody um, the spirit of the kingdom of Jesus, not the kingdom of this world. And so in a sense, it's somewhat of a rebellion against the kingdom of this world. And it's saying, you know what? This doesn't satisfy. This doesn't bring life. This doesn't bring joy. This doesn't bring what it promises to bring. And so uh, you're no longer being conformed by the patterns of this world, as, as Romans 12, 1 will say. But now you're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And the Bible will tell you that if you're not careful, if you're not careful and you're not vigilant, and you don't understand what, what it looks like to live under the reign of Christ, you will drift. The inclination of your heart is to default to the kingdom of this world. And so if you're not careful, and if we're to be honest, all of us see this in different areas of our life, we just kind of get squeezed into the mold and the pattern of this world. We get squeezed, we get worked, we get, you know, this is this is the gospel that's preached of this world. It's, 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 it's live like this, it's live for yourself, it's, it's you know, it's live a life of immorality. All the, I mean, we are surrounded and inundated by that, are we not? So, so, you know, 167 hours of the week, we are inundated by the world's message which says, you know, come over to the kingdom of darkness, live this way, and you will have all that God could never promise and deliver on. You will have all, God is restricting you, God is holding you back, God is, God is oppressing you, and then over here is freedom and life. I mean, there's all these temptations to be squeezed into the mold of this world, whether it has to do with um, chasing success, a certain vision of success, or chasing after a relationship, or chasing after lust, or whatever it is. And so when we begin to come over here and we see that the reign of Christ brings these blessings and these promises, we are defying. So, so what happens is, as we together, as the community of God, as God's people, begin to live this way, and that is a powerful, compelling thing. And so we, we, we defy the kingdom of this world and begin to live under the reign of Christ, and people get drawn into that. And so people see that, you know what, and there's a way to live where we are just completely in slavery to the kingdom of this world. And we are freed up to live a life that's generous and that serves other people and that's focused on, uh, on, on living under the reign of Christ. And so I don't have to live in the slavery of that. So that's just kind of something I think is super important to understand that it's an act of defiance. If you want to be a rebel, why don't you be a rebel against the kingdom of this world? Like so many of us spend all of our time trying to rebel against every authority in our life. We rebel against our parents. We rebel against our pastors. We are complete rebels because um, we don't want to live under the under the reign really of anybody. And so if I could just encourage you guys, if you want to be rebels, if First Baptist Cleveland student ministry wants to be known as a group of rebels, why don't we be known as a group of rebels that shake our fists in defiance against the kingdom of the, the kingdoms of this world? Why don't we defy against Satan and his, why don't we rebel against that? And why don't we choose to live under the rule and the reign of Christ? And as these things become more and more evident in our life we will no longer be conformed to this pattern. We begin to, begin to see transformation and, and to live in the world. So let me just pray for you guys. And this, this is what we're going to talk about this week. And I want to encourage you to, to consider these things and to consider how um, you might allow um, the patterns and the ways of living in the kingdom to begin to break into your life so that you can see transformation, so that you can see joy, so that you can begin to see these promises of the kingdom become a reality in your life.
today, right here, right now, in your everyday life. Not just some future hope of heaven and one day there's going to be glory and one day there's going to be the great by and by and the kingdom, you know, the, the gold streets, but right now in your life, where you will begin to submit areas of your life to the rule and the reign of Christ so that you can experience the blessing and the fortune and the happiness and the joy that God's created for you to live in Christ Jesus. Okay, so let me pray for you guys. Father, thank you so much for um, the Beatitudes for Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for what it calls us to. Uh, God, I thank you that in our in our own flesh we can't really even obtain these things. It's a paradox. God, we as we submit our lives to the reign of Christ, we begin to live out of these things, not for these things. And so, God, I pray this week that you would begin to see, uh, we begin to see victory, we begin to see submission of our lives, of our hearts, of every aspect of our lives to the kingdom of God. That we begin to see transformation and wholeness and satisfaction found in the kingdom of God, not in the kingdoms of this world. I pray that we'd be rebelling against the systems and the kingdoms of this world, acting in defiance. Uh, against those things that would seek to destroy us. And then we'd see movement towards life and wholeness and wholeness in the kingdom of God this week. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.